Welcome to Have You Got That Right, the new podcast of the Casson Centre for Human Rights Law at Monash University. Uh, just a warning in exercising our freedom of expression, there's a tiny little bit of explicit language in today's episode. Welcome to Have You Got That Right, the new podcast of the Caston Centre for Human Rights Law here at Monash University. I'm your host, Marius Smith, manager of the Caston Centre. And I'm Sarah Joseph, director of the Caston Centre. And I'm Melissa Caston, deputy director of the Caston Centre. If you want to get a a quick feel for who we are and how we're going to do this podcast and how it'll work, there's a brief introductory episode right behind this one in uh, your podcast timeline. Um, Today we're going to begin with a discussion on humanitarian intervention, which is front of mind at the moment in light of Trump's uh, recent bombings in Syria and the ongoing debate about what to do there. Um, Then we'll move on to a chat about some current human rights topics before finishing off with our human rights hero or villain of the week. And did you see that, where we each bring up one thing that's caught our attention recently about human rights or otherwise? So, Sarah... um, on Syria, I'm just and in humanitarian intervention. I'm just going to jump right in. Syria's in the news, and some people are calling for you know, a greater level of intervention there on humanitarian grounds. Um, can you? What is humanitarian intervention? I would define humanitarian intervention as the use of force against a country, the use of military force against a country, for the purposes of stopping extreme human rights abuses that are taking place in that country. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is that this use of force occurs without the consent of the country. Um, So that's what distinguishes humanitarian intervention from peacekeeping, because peacekeeping uh, can take place, well, does take place with the consent of the government involved. Right. So on that then, if you're talking about going into a country without that country's consent and using force, you're talking about basically starting a war. Correct. So when, um, you know, when is it OK to start a war under international law? OK. Um, first thing I'll say is we're talking here about international law because international law is, um, is surprisingly silent on the issue of civil war, mm. OK? So we'll, um, which is, in fact, what's relevant in Syria as well. But starting a war used to be a legal and surprisingly normal way of conducting your foreign policy. But that's going back to, I guess, the 19th century. So sometime in the 20th century, I would date it from the 1920s for reasons I won't go into, uh, but sometime in the 20th century, it became illegal for one state to use force against another state. Um, I'm not talking about Australian states, I'm talking about countries. (laughs) And so... Uh, and I think that dates from the 1920s, but at the very latest, it dates from 1945 in the UN Charter. So since that time, you really can't use war um, as a means of, you know, as a general means of resolving your disputes. Hmm. So then, in this case, you're talking about you're intervening militarily to stop human rights abuses, but if you can't start a war, then it sounds like it's not legal. Yeah, look, there are a couple of exceptions um, regarding the use of force. The first one is self-defence. The second one is that war can be authorised by the Security Council. The Security Council, in certain circumstances, can authorise the use of force against a country. Uh, But the 
issue there is that the Security Council does that rarely. Um, it's very difficult to get nine out of 15 states to agree to that. And then you've got uh, the permanent five who have the veto. And so bringing it back to Syria, one reason why humanitarian intervention, well, well why the use of force would not be authorised in Syria is because Russia would undoubtedly veto that. Uh, so those are the two orthodox exceptions. There are some very good international lawyers who argue that there is a separate exception for humanitarian intervention. The steps for outlining that are pretty complex, and mm. I might not go into that, because what I want to say there is, I guess I use the analogy of the orthodox view, and that is that if you put every international lawyer in the world into a room and got them to vote and ask them, you know, is humanitarian intervention legal, I have no doubt the majority would say no. Mm. And personally, I'm with the majority. Can I just ask something, Sarah? I don't really understand something you said. How bad do the human rights abuses have to be before you generate this even potential to, to intervene in this way? I mean, what human rights abuses are we talking about? The right to education is denied to people? Uh, well, for a start, humanitarian intervention is not legal. So in, in asking for a threshold, it kind of doesn't work because if it's not legal there is no threshold mm. but as I said there are some excellent international lawyers who argue otherwise and the threshold would have to be extremely high because you know even on a co well a cost benefit analysis sounds terrible when you're talking about human rights but the human rights abuses have to be extremely awful and probably involve probably have to involve mass loss of life in order to justify the use of force which will inevitably lead to the mass loss of life. Look, there's a great quote, which I think comes from the 1960s, that fighting for peace is like fucking for virginity. <laughs> and I'm afraid I've got a lot of sympathy for that mm, view. Mm. Um, look, there has definitely been, in a way, some successful um, so-called humanitarian interventions. Mm. I actually think the most successful may in fact be ones that have not involved the great powers. So... Um, India, and all due respect, it is a great power now, but India back in Bangladesh in 1970. Mm. Uh, Vietnam and Cambodia uh, probably had one of the most humanitarian outcomes of all, uh, quite strangely, because well, they brought um, genocide to an end. Um, and that's quite strange so because is, Vietnam... You're about Vietnam, Vietnam Cambodia... Yeah, then called Kampuchea. Yep. And um, what's quite strange there is Vietnam never claimed that its motive was humanitarian. Mm. That was just taking advantage of a very weak country and actually an old-fashioned conquest. Mm. And yet it had very, you know, there's no reason to think Pol Pot would have stopped. So it probably has the clearest humanitarian outcome. Mm. Um, and then you have Kosovo in 1999. All of these were um, humanitarian intervention. All of them, under the orthodox view, are illegal. So can I stop you there? What about the R2P or the Responsibility to Protect? How does that come into this discussion? OK, the R2P emerged, uh, I think, sometime in the 1990s, and that was an idea that... Um, another, another sort of incursion into state sovereignty, if you like, that this idea that states don't just have sovereign rights, but they also have a responsibility to protect everyone, as Marius said, under their umbrella. And that would include, um, if they are unable to do that, accepting help and accepting, if you like, humanitarian organisations into the country. So that's actually the vast bulk of R2P. The bit you're talking about is kind of the pointy end. And that's the idea that if a state just ultimately fails, it can't protect its people. Mm. Um, and I guess a classic example there would be if it's the one attacking its own people. Right. That does the R2P somehow revert to someone else, like some neighbouring country that might come in and intervene. Right. Uh, so this 
idea got a lot of legs around the time of Kosovo, mm. and I I don't find that surprising because, as I said, Kosovo, you know, under under orthodox international law appears to be illegal, and so then there was a lot of you know scrabbling around to try and come up with an idea that it was legal. R two P was an was one idea. Another idea was the idea of oh it might have been illegal, but it was legitimate. And right. I mean. That's the. Uh, if you're looking at developing international law by looking at state practice, what mm. states do, which is you know, sort of a source of international law, um, it, it's probably you're always going to find it hard to do, to to show that R2P has become international law because, first of all, as you say, um, there's a whole bunch of states who are never going to accept intervention into their countries, no matter what happens, and probably also they're not going to accept intervention into any country that's an ally. So, I mean, if you look at what's mm. happened over the weekend, Donald Trump has gone to Saudi Arabia and he has, uh, as I understand it, sort of reversed an Obama-era policy by inking a massive arms deal with Saudi. Not not that the US have had a problem with selling to the Saudis in the past, but, you know, you'd extrapolate out from that. It doesn't matter what the Saudis do to their citizens. The US are, are, are going to veto any, any suggestion. And of, also what the Saudis might be doing in Yemen right now. yeah. And so, I mean, I mean, R2P and humanitarian intervention, if it was ever to become a legal doctrine, mm. I, it would be utterly beset by inconsistency and hypocrisy. Yeah. Um, what? That but, never happens. <laughs> <laughs> but, if you're, but in fairness, if your, whole, if your whole justification for a doctrine is, like, a morality, basically, isn't it? It's saying we, we have a moral it's responsibility. Some form of morality. Mm. Then, then hypocrisy becomes particularly problematic in that situation. So, and, and if you look at the history of, uh, uh, of sort of, you know, I, I reckon I'd say you can really trace humanitarian intervention as a do- developing doctrine back to sort of what's happened post-Cold War. So, you know, at the end of the Cold War, there's this sort of moment where First World and Third World alliances break down. Mm. There seems to be a free-for-all. There's the Iraq War and in the... There's the New World Order. The New World Order. my God, I haven't heard that for so long. (laughs) Um, It didn't last long, did it? It's different to New World. So we have the war in Iraq in 91. And then then after it, um, you have the US um, going into Kurdish, the Kurdish zones of Iraq to use their military for a very much a humanitarian intervention to deliver food. But that was authorised by the Security yeah. Council. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, to the extent that there is what you call a doctrine, mm. um, the Security Council has probably always had the power to authorise humanitarian interventions. Mm. Until the end of the Cold War, it was in gridlock. It did yeah. authorise a lot of stuff because mm. both sides kept on vetoing each yeah. other. And then there was this moment in time around 1990 or whatever when there did seem to be a moment of consensus on the Security Council. So, um, But I wouldn't call that a doctrine. That's something that's always been able to happen. It just was not structurally able to happen during the Cold War. Well, I think we're talking about slightly different. You're sort of talking about a legal doctrine and I'm just talking about a moral doctrine, you know, or a political doctrine even that's kind of developed. So you see that happen and then in 92 you see Somalia happen... Um, which, you know, talking beforehand, I was saying, to me, looks like the high watermark for humanitarian intervention because there's this moment where the US says, what's happening in Somalia is so horrible, we have to go in. And there's no... Somalia doesn't have oil. There's no obvious reason why you would go into Somalia. It does seem to be a genuinely humanitarian gesture on the part of the US and its allies to go into Somalia. And then that breaks down within a year or so... When because, I mean, I think another thing about Somalia is they thought it would be easy. Yeah. 
and, and they it still really think it was. <laughs> well, no, it, it really wasn't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Black Hawk Down and all that. Yeah. And so maybe it was the high point of at least the high point of Security Council authorised intervention. Mm. There was another one two years later in Haiti. Mm. Um, but that never actually ended up happening. But uh, because the Security Council had authorised force, the military government then could see the writing on the wall and they stepped down. So mm. in the end, there was no actual armed intervention um, or humanitarian intervention. But then there was nothing from the Security Council for, for over a decade. Yeah. So I'm not sure if that moment in time, even when you say an evolution of a moral doctrine or something, it suddenly stopped in 1994. Yeah. But it might also be that that moment of consensus on the Security Council also broke down. Yeah, but I, I would say just that, that politically, you know, there was... So a year later, the US doesn't go into Rwanda, but there is, there is an enormous global backlash against the West for not doing something to stop Rwanda, for example. So there's this... There's this dichotomy between what happens on the Security Council mm. and what's just happening out there in the world and how we all kind of view what should happen in these mm. situations. But so let's move forward then to, to... So you said then there's nothing for a decade. Let's move to one that got a lot of interest from international lawyers, which was um, the Security Council resolution going to Libya in mm-hmm. 2013. So what happened there? Um, it was 2011. Sorry, 2011. And, um, well, it was kind of in the middle of the euphoria of the Arab Spring. And um, I, I was an avid watcher of the avid, uh, of the uh, Arab Spring on Twitter. Good tweet. And you know, you had um, the the government in Tunisia fall. You had the government in Egypt fall. And then, at least if you were watching Twitter, it seemed like you know Libya would even fall. And then you got these absolutely um, you know horrendous reports of massacres happening in Libya and so on. And then you know, um, uh, well, at first it looked like Gaddafi was going to lose, and then he you know. Reorganised, and um, then the Libyan army was kind of standing outside Benghazi, which was the rebel stronghold. And the people of Benghazi, and I understand completely why, were kind of calling out to the world, help us, otherwise he's going to massacre us. Mm. Uh, he really didn't help himself by saying, yes, that's exactly what I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, and you know, his son was saying the same thing. And so the Security Council in 2011 did authorise... Um, they don't use the words humanitarian intervention, mm. but they u- authorise the use of force to stop uh, or to protect civilians. And uh, I think if you read that resolution, it's probably one of the most aggressive the Security Council's ever passed. How and so? Well, it, I mean, it pretty much authorises a, a very wide-ranging use of force. At the time, a lot of people were saying, uh, once the use of force actually started, were saying, oh, this is illegal, it was only ever meant to be a no-fly zone. Read the resolution, it doesn't say that. Mm. So, um, so I think when I say aggressive, it authorised, if you like, a lot of force. So did humanitarian intervention work then in Libya? Well, I was a supporter of the resolution when it was passed back in March 2011. I was cautious because, again, I'm always cautious about the idea of using war to solve these issues. Um, In retrospect, I don't know. I think think Libya is certainly more unstable today. It's probably more dangerous for the people in Libya and it's probably a lot more dangerous for the rest of the world. It's become a bit of a hotbed for IS. Mm. So that's another reason why I'm very sceptical about humanitarian intervention. It doesn't seem to lead often to very good outcomes. So let's bring this all around full circle then back to Syria. So Syria is this incredibly complex civil war with... um, Goodies, baddies and baddies. 
Yeah, bad guys fighting bad guys wasn't the famous uh, Tony Abbott expression. Yeah, but I think there are some good guys like maybe hidden somewhere in there. Somewhere, you there yeah. You've got, yeah. you got to find them though. And there's obviously international actors, the US and Russia, chief amongst them. So, you know, looking at it through through a lens of international law and the, and the doctrine of humanitarian intervention, R2P, like how do we approach Syria? Is it just too hard? Okay, so just going through what's happening in Syria, um, just focusing on the Syrian government first of all, as I, I think I said before that international law is pretty, it's, it's pretty silent on a civil war. There's no right to rebel, but there's no duty not to rebel. Mm. And um, a government can fight rebels, it can put rebels down. So in that sense, the civil war itself is, not, is neither illegal or legal. But I think it's pretty clear that the methods being used by um, by Assad are a, are a grave breach of international law and war crimes, crimes against humanity, etc. Um, Russia is Syria's ally and it's involved as well. Uh, but um, international law is kind of unfair when it comes to states. It favours states. So if Syria is fighting a war and it wants allies to help it, a civil war, and it wants allies to help it, those allies are allowed to help it. Mm. It's much like um, you know fighting in Afghanistan now to help out the Afghan government or fighting in Iraq. That's what Russia's doing. Um, so Russia's involvement is not illegal. But again, there, I think, are serious questions over the way Russia is fighting the war. You hear about the horrors of Aleppo at the end of last year and so on. If they're just bombing civilians, that's war crimes. Because there is a distinction between actually fighting a war, you called it Yus ad bellum, yeah. and the other thing is Yus in bello, which is the way in which you fight the war. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's America, um, and America is fighting IS in both Iraq and Syria. In Iraq, that's fine, because you know Iraq has consented to that, the Iraqi mm-hmm. government. In Syria, it's a lot more complicated, because uh, you'd have to raise a pretty fancy self-defence argument, which I won't go into. But I think the, the thing you were getting at was the bombing of the airstrip a couple of weeks yeah, ago, yeah. Uh, which... Um, in some ways, I think quite ironically, was Trump's you know allegedly finest moment as president. It's certainly the well, so far. Yeah. Hang on, yeah. no, give no, him a chance. No, 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 Neil, Neil Gorsuch, <laughs> as in the last few months, <laughs> Neil Gorsuch is going to uh, rewrite history on the American Supreme Court for the next forty years. That aside, no, no, but I'm talking about you know the the action he has taken, which seems to have gotten the most approval from the commentary. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, was that humanitarian intervention? It, 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 maybe. But it was more like just punishing Syria for using chemical weapons, which is slightly different. It was like a retaliation. It wasn't stopping anything imminent. It wasn't even saying stop fighting your own people. I guess it was sending a message, if you use chemical weapons again, we'll bomb you again. Hmm. But if you, you actually can't use force to punish either. Hmm. You I can use it you know, to stop an attack in self-defence hmm. or something, but you can't just use it um, in retaliation, not even for the use you of chemical weapons. You can't smack people. Well, international law. <laughs> True. But if your action is designed to inhibit the ability of a government to carry out further war crimes, at least you're, that's a, you're making a stronger argument. You're making a stronger argument. But you're sure. probably still not. I, I mean, so, so let me just ask this question. The bombing of the airstrip, uh, breach of international law or not? Breach. Yeah. Okay. All right, we're going to leave it there and move on to Human Rights News of the Week. So, in the past week, uh, there's naturally been lots of stories with a human rights focus, but I want to focus on a couple. So, so one of them here in Australia that, that has been hard to avoid most of the time, and especially in the last week, is refugees and asylum seekers. And 
the ultimatum by the Immigration Minister Peter Dutton late last week that um, about 7,000 asylum seekers in Australia must apply for asylum by the 31st of October or be removed from the country. Um, now, this is a tight deadline, but in addition, he said that, or be removed from the country because they're fake refugees. Right. So I just can't even... Go there. Just, <laughs> so, Melissa, what's the background of this story? Uh, who are these people who haven't applied well, and why haven't they applied? They say that there's some 50,000 asylum seekers that arrived by boat. Obviously, there's other asylum seekers familiar with this story over you know the previous kind of 10 years, 8 years. And of those, about 43,000 have been processed. So there's apparently about 7,000 who are unprocessed in, the, in terms of this. Um, I think one of the key issues here is that these particular people outside the process were stopped from being able to continue in the process and were only allowed to restart their process late last year. Yeah, yeah. And, and quite a few have been processed since that time. And, and, um, and yeah, the problem now is one of resources. And I know that... Uh, our friends at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre uh, um, advertised recently for four or five lawyers on temporary contracts just to churn through this backlog. So you've got these people, many of whom don't speak English. It's a really complex application process. Like, the form is really complex. You need a lawyer. There aren't enough lawyers to do them. Mm. So... It, at first glance, October 31 sounds fine, but when you realise the resources that you need to do an individual application and the number of lawyers who will do them pro bono, there's just so little out there. So that's the first thing, that you know, lawyers are saying that timeline is unrealistic. Mm. It's October it's, 1. Yeah, oh, October 1, is it? So it, it's partly the fault of the government because they actually had a moratorium on applications for a long period of time. But then in addition to this, you have... Dutton saying if you don't get in by that date it shows you're a fake refugee mm. which is yeah. yeah well it's just another example of this government and particularly the Minister for Immigration um, taking all the opportunities available to demonise refugees mm. um, I believe he did that with regard to the Manus you know the attack in Manus on, um, on Good Friday mm. um, it doesn't um, you know, in, in talking about you know the reason he thinks that that attack happened, which no one else seems to be backing up, and really did paint refugees in a very very poor light. Uh, and then you have perhaps a budget that doesn't seem to have boosted the polls as much perhaps the government wants to, and so they've gone back to a pretty familiar theme of mm. kicking refugees. Yeah. So to just assume and use the term fake refugees, and then again you know talk in terms of oh you're taking you know you're taking advantage of australia etc cetera, etc cetera. it's just another um of just a series of demonizations mm. and it runs deeper than though just the minister getting out in front of this it runs deeper even than the laws they pass and the things they do like stopping refugee applications for a period of time it, 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 it's over the years infiltrated every level of the process, particularly the Immigration Department. And so, you know, over the last week, Ben Doherty and his team at The Guardian have been doing an amazing job. And a couple of other stories come up. One is uh, just a level of surveillance of refugees on Manus Island. Like, like they're making notes, this guy looked well-groomed or he looked dishevelled. He was engaging with us in a warm manner or he was unstable and incoherent. Like, they've, they're, 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 it's like these people are, you know, tiny little, you know mousetrap being watched at every moment because they kind of are and then um, yeah, and then you have this story also that came out last week that they've been you know deliberately imposing more and more oppressive conditions on Manus 
you know, in order to, you know, deter asylum seekers and get them to leave. What I'd like to see is a lot more questions about this in Parliament. Mm. And, you know, well, why isn't a, that happening? You'd need an opposition, wouldn't you? Correct. <laughs> in short. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's right. But also, one thing to leave you with on this topic, like, we go back to the last time that this happened when so the boats sort of stopped coming and public opinion started to turn. And then you had an immigration department that it turned out was locking up um, Australian citizens and in one case even deporting an Australian citizen to the Philippines. Um, and then there was a big review into the immigration department which showed this, that there was just this, this yeah. level of distrust and suspicion of people involved in the immigration yeah. process. And and as a result, I think it was the Palmer report. As a result, you know, there was a bit of an upswing. But, I mean, I, you oh, know... I don't what think things have got better since no, that No, I mean, you need a Palmer report. We need a, you know, we ne- you know that department needs to be reviewed and investigated independently. And, and, and Maybe we'll see something in estimates. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just think, I mean, the policy is cruel. It's having cruel outcomes. And in order to implement that policy, you're going to end up with a culture problem in the department. Yes, yeah. All right. One other issue I want to bring up. Uh, I suspect that as the uh, podcast develops, it won't be the only time that I bring up the issue of Trump and human rights. Oh, no, come on. <laughs> but um, uh, I wanted to focus on one thing that's really interesting that's come over the last week. Um, so over the last couple of years in the United States, there's been this really interesting bipartisan move towards um, uh, uh, um, reforming the criminal justice system. An acknowledgement on both sides, Republicans and Democrats, that there are too many people in jail. We need other alternatives to imprisonment. We need to change um, the way we run the criminal justice system because it's just so unfair. Um, and this was getting to a point where it looked like something was going to pass the Senate late last year. It didn't. And there was a couple of people in the Senate who were opposed to this process. One of them was a guy named Jeff Sessions, and he is now the Attorney General of the United States. What? And so um, just recently he has announced um, a a new policy. Uh, He put out a policy into his department to say, wherever possible, you must go for the the, the harshest crime, and then you must push for the harshest possible penalty. So basically one man... You know, against swimming against this tide of, of a popular opinion has has almost sort of kick-started the the war on crime. And it's not just really crime. popular opinion. It's actually that the the evidence is that kind of this type of hard clampdown mm. on the minor players in a criminal justice situation in a crime mm. are not necessarily the people you slam with the hardest penalty. Mm. Um, there's reasons why you know prosecutorial authorities will go for for catching the small fish to get the big fish, but this isn't the way you do that. No. So... I mean, it's just ended up after all these decades. I think the war on crime started big time under Richard Nixon. Mm. And uh, actually, I think a big villain here is actually Bill Clinton, that it Mm. absolutely exploded under Bill Clinton, and he now accepts that he was very wrong. I mean, he's, he's... uh, under his watch, that was when a lot of three strikes policies were introduced and so on. So we end up in a situation where America is, um, United States as a whole, is one of the most imprisoned populations in the world. And they're not nice prisons, are they? No. So, and it's not a, a kind of even distribution of who's in prison either. Absolutely so. not. And I'd encourage listeners uh, in this respect to listen to... There's a Foxtel uh, movie called 13, 
um, 13 because it's based on the 13th Amendment of the US Constitution mm. and it talks about... Um, it's a great documentary on US um, penal policy. And, uh, yeah, this is an absolute reversal of anything that that documentary could be uh, recommending. And it's mm. it's a policy that just objectively, well, it's clearly a it's breach of human rights, but it's also, it doesn't work. No. One other piece of news was that in Philadelphia, a guy called Larry Krasner uh, won the Democratic no- nomination for the district attorney, and he... He has, he has um, defended Black Lives Matter and occupied protesters. He is a vocal opponent of mass incarceration and the tough-on-crime mm-hmm. policy, and he very good chance to win in November. Um, just an illustration of how, you know, contrary to Jeff Sessions, there's so much movement in the opposite direction. Mm. And I think, you know, f- from an Australian point of view, it's interesting, you know, we should keep this in mind because it feels like... That tough oh, on crime is it's in yeah, the we've definitely the seen moment. the same kind of problems in the Victorian mm. incarceration yeah. statistics and the way that's played out. Yeah, but we'll come back to that another time, maybe. Yeah. All right. Um, now this is the section where we get to talk about our human rights hero or villain of the week. Okay, so uh, Melissa, let's start with you. Who's your hero or villain of the week? Oh well, my one is a question: hero <laughs> or villain? Julian Assange. Mm. Uh, the Swedish charges against him have just been dropped. He's still uh, what he he says he's detained in the uh, embassy in London, but it's a self-imposed detention, obviously. John Pill just says uh, that he, he represents a brutal and corrupt assault on freedom of speech. Um, the the women, you know, making the claims against him have have had you know claims that their rights have been. Um, infringed by him. So, you know, he's a really polarising figure. He is a polarising figure. You only have to mention him on Twitter and you'll just get either bashed or clapped. And, uh, you know, people... There's no sort of in-between with Julian Assange. All right. Fancy it. I'm not sitting on the fence. Um, My uh, human rights villain of the week is Uganda's President Museveni, who... Um, in April imprisoned uh, Dr Stella Nianzi, who is an academic in Uganda, uh, for violating the Computer Misuse Act of 2011 um, after she made a number of comments, including criticising the government's decision not to fund sanitary pads in schools, which is shown to be... You know, a lack of sanitary pads is shown to be a, a barrier to, to girls attending mm. school. She remains in jail. Um, a number of us from the Caston Centre recently signed a petition in relation to her imprisonment um, and for that reason and uh, plenty of others frankly uh, President Museveni is my villain of the week Okay well I might then have a hero of the week Yay, that's um, except it's really a hero from two weeks ago but given that's this okay. is our first <laughs> podcast that's okay and I'm going to go for Sally Yates Mm. who uh, was the acting Attorney General in the United States and then was sacked by Donald Trump. Uh, She appeared before Congress a couple of weeks ago uh, to answer certain questions about... uh, about you know her actions during that very small period of time that she was the attorney general, and I just love the way she schooled Congress, and I always I just love people sitting there and uh, just you know telling them, look, your knowledge of the law, your knowledge of constitutional law is completely wrong. And, uh, <laughs> and there was, that guy there was is one Ted ex- Cruz. There, well, there was, no, it wasn't only Ted Cruz. There was another guy who sort of accused her, well, of of bad behaviour when you know when she um, refused to enforce the you know. 
the executive the, order. The executive order, yeah, the one that everyone called the Muslim ban, mm. the original Muslim ban. And uh, he sort of said, you know, weren't you acting politically and against your oath? And she said, no, no, you might remember, sir, that when you confirmed me, I promised you, and she actually promised him, you know, this particular <laughs> directly. senator directly, that I would do nothing. I would always uphold the constitution. So in doing that, I was I was fulfilling my promise to you. And I just thought, love the way she's turned that round and um, mm. absolutely schooled these bully boys who were, um, you know, who didn't, who weren't aware of the facts. So, um, all right, finally, uh, did you see that? So uh, one thing I want to mention from uh, for this week, we in 2014 did a series of videos called Have You Got That Right? Which is what has led us to calling the, the podcast Have You Got That Right? Because it's all about explaining human rights in a way that people hopefully find interesting. Um, we did another series which we've just released recently. Um, if you search for Have You Got That Right or just go to haveyougotthatright.com, um, you'll find them and watch them. They're fun, they're entertaining, they're short, and uh, you also learn something. So did you see that Bill Shorten, in reference to uh, Ruddock's jet-setting around the world to pitch for um, Australia's seat at the Human Rights Council, said, it sounds like a lot of Qantas pyjamas for Mr Ruddock, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> So I'm not sure of our prospects when it comes down to, you know, how many sets of Qantas pyjamas do you collect on your trips around the world? Australia is vying with France and Spain for two available seats. Um, I'm not sure what our actual current real prospects are. Sarah, have you heard of any of the bets or the odds for Australia getting this seat? I don't know if um, odds are set for the Human Rights Council. <laughs> you can bet on anything in Australia. <laughs> yeah, that, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you probably can. I mean, I have heard that France is a favourite because it's permanent five on the Security Council and they don't tend to lose. Yeah. Having said that, Russia actually lost last year, so Ooh. maybe we're, you know, we're, we're entering in. a new phase. I wouldn't want to predict that. Um, I mean, you know, the two European countries will likely have all the support of Europe, um, whereas Australia probably can count on some support from Asia. We'll just have to see how it pans out. Cool. All right, Sarah, what do you got? Man, I've got no idea. <laughs> you, didn't, I, you only reminded me that's five minutes ago. <laughs> I might just opt for an easy one. Did you see those kangaroos yesterday? Ah. <laughs> Football. That's all right. Yeah, Look, I'm not going to say that every single time. We've only won three games. So, you know, the fact is, the fact that we won was pretty good. I know. Welcome to my world of the last five years following the Saints. <laughs> all right. Um, that's a wrap for our first episode. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you to Melissa and Sarah for coming in. Um, this will be up on our website. Uh, you'll also, if you want to see all of our episodes, should follow us on social media. Just search for Caston Centre on all of the relevant platforms. And anything we discuss, we'll make sure we get up online uh, links to that stuff. See you next time. Bye-bye.